Please join me in the first book of Kings, chapter 14. We'll look together at that passage that we read where Jeroboam, the king of Israel, sends his wife to inquire of the prophet of God. If you'd like a title for this sermon, it would be a mistaken identity. And that is Jeroboam and his wife. They have a mistaken identity, an idea in their head of who God is. My friends, we should all ask ourselves sometimes, how is our theology doing? Theology isn't a word that we should run away from. It is our understanding of who God is. Everybody is a theologian. Everybody has an idea of who God is. Now, is it an idea that comes from our imagination and our experience, or does it come from his word, what he has revealed of himself? Well, Jeroboam's theology was way off the mark, and it changed the way that he lived and he conducted himself. He was the first king of Israel after the kingdom of Israel had been divided. The Israelites, they looked around at all the other nations around them and they decided they wanted a king. Until that point, they had been ruled by God, really, and through judges, servants of God, but they wanted a king. So God said to them, well, you can have a king. You can have a king the way you want. And he gave them Saul. And Saul was as kingly as they come on the outside. He was tall, dark and handsome. He was from the warrior tribe. But Saul was a very flawed individual. And he was taken over, the kingdom was taken over by David, perhaps the most famous of the Israelite kings. And then Solomon. Solomon, the wisest man who made the foolishest decisions. After Solomon, the kingdom was divided and David's dynasty took over the, well, kept, retained rule of the southern kingdom. And a new man, Jeroboam, was appointed by God to rule the northern kingdom. Jeroboam had been anointed by Ahijah while Solomon was still king. And he had actually had to flee for his life because Solomon wanted to assassinate him to try and hold on to the whole kingdom. But we can find out from the earlier portion of Kings that Jeroboam was, he was an astute and intelligent man. He was a persuasive orator. Even before his anointing, he was a leader of men. He led some of the unions in the days of Solomon. However, with all of his winsomeness and all of his cleverness, he was a fool. Biblically speaking, he was a fool. And we find this manifested really in chapter 12 of 1 Kings, where he's made king, but then he starts meddling. He starts meddling with the worship of God. In verse 28 of chapter 12, we find that he took counsel, counsel and he made two calves of gold. And he said unto them, his people, it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. He said the one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. He was a clever man. He was worried that if his people continued going to the temple, then they might think, well, actually, I like the temple in 
Rehoboam, the old kingdom. Let's get back together again. That was his fear. So he comes with this quite reasonable request. And he says, well, it's difficult for you to have to travel all the way to Jerusalem. You have to get babysitters. It takes a week. So what we'll do is we'll make our worship easy. We'll make these two calves and you can just worship them close to you. So he built these calves. In verse 31 of chapter 5, we find that he corrupted the clergy. He made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi. In verse 33, we find that he's making up his own feast days now, not just the ones that God appointed. No, we'll just make our own ones up. He starts meddling with the worship of Almighty God. And he was warned. In chapter 13, God sends a young prophet to him and says, Jeroboam, you can't, can't continue like this. Jeroboam reacts like perhaps some of us would react and railed against the prophet. He was warned. And in that same chapter, he was disciplined by God. His hand was made leprous. And then he received mercy from God. His hand was restored to him. And yet, at the end of chapter 13, in verse 33, we read this. After this very, very clear warning from God. After this thing, Jeroboam returned not from his evil way, but made again from the lowest of the people priests of the high places. Whosoever would, he consecrated him, and he became one of the priests of the high places. He's not unusual, really. He's not unusual in the fact that he was warned, and yet he continued in sin. I wonder how many times have we gone through this cycle. We've been warned, perhaps we've been disciplined, we've received mercy from God and then we turn back to the same old sins, the same old disobedience. Well, how was he so foolish? Well, it stems, stems really from what Jeroboam thought of God. What did he think of God? What do you and I think of God? This is so important because what we think of God will shape it will determine our behaviours in life and in our dealings with God. We must all deal with God. We are dealing with him every day, whether we realise it or not. We're given time, we're given life, we're given, we're given energy with which to either serve him or serve ourselves. And what we think of God will decide what we do with our resources. Now Jeroboam... He did not doubt the existence of God. That is clear. He has heard from God many times. He's been made a leper and been unmade a leper. He knew that God was real. He'd had previous dealings with God. He just had a skewed idea of who God was. And perhaps there are some here today who would say, I, I'm a God believer. I'm a believer in God. But you're not right with him anyway. You're not right with him because you don't understand who God really is. I'd like to look at a few things, a few giveaways of what Jeroboam thought of God. The first is that he thought God was only really needed in a crisis. In verse 1 of chapter 14, it starts with these words, At that time, Abijah the son of Jeroboam fell sick. At that time, 
This is a link back to the previous chapter. This is a link back to Jeroboam continuing in his sin. His persistent sin in the face of the previous warnings. At that time, he receives news that strikes at his very heart. His son, his eldest son, the prince, is very sick. A Jeroboam, he might have been brash and bold with his own life. But when his loved ones are affected, well, God gets his attention now. Our society will try to hide the reality of death from all of us. Death sharpens our spiritual faculties, doesn't it? It would be a good thing if we spent a little bit of time every day considering our own death. What lies beyond for us? It is an unpleasant reality, but it's one that we must all face. We need to consider it carefully because we don't know when it will come. And when it does come, our eternal destiny will be fixed. In Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 3, we read these words, In the place where the tree falleth, there it shall be. My friends, if I was to die today, if you were to die today, where would you be? On which side would you fall? Are you a friend of God? Or are you an enemy of God? Well, before we all step into eternity, we must all do business with God. Jeroboam here, his son is very ill. This son that he had trained, this son that he had invested in. So he says to his wife, I'd like you to go and meet the prophet. Go and have an audience with God. He'll know what to do. Why did Jeroboam not go? Why did he not go and seek God's face? Perhaps he didn't think God was worth his time. Perhaps it was because he feared that God would have nothing to do with him because of his sin. Probably it was because it was his last resort. It was his last resort and he thought it's best if I send my wife. I wonder, is that a reflection of our faith? Are we considering God as a last resort? resort we're not willing to seek him today unless we absolutely have to unless a crisis comes then that will sharpen the point but until then i'm just going to go home from church once again and put these things to the back of my mind don't wait until a crisis comes seek him today jeroboam secondly thought that god was easily deceived he sends his wife and she he he says to her put a disguise on Disguise yourself. Why why do you think she disguised herself? We're speculating here. Perhaps he was ashamed, Jeroboam. Because to go and seek the the God-man, the prophet, it was an admittance that his calves, his priests, they didn't have the answer. They couldn't help him. He didn't want to show this weakness, though. So he says, disguise yourself. That is something that keeps many people from turning to God. They don't want to suffer the shame. I used to go be anti-God. I used to think that he was stupid. I used to think he was not, not even existing. But if I go to him, if I show this weakness, then it won't reflect well on me. I wonder, are we ashamed to be seen to go to God? Ashamed 
to admit we have nowhere else to go, that we have nothing that we can do. We must only go to him. I wonder, do we come here this evening, like Jeroboam's wife, hoping to to deceive God? You know, we too can come to church, to an audience with God, and we can wear a disguise, can't we? Now, our clothes, they should reflect what we think of God, don't get me wrong. But they're not to make us look like something we're not. I wonder, do we blend in with so-called Christian people? We look just like a Christian. We had a baptism at our church recently of a young man who it was assumed was a Christian. He started gathering with us and he was actually asked at a prayer meeting if he would pray. It was wonderful to hear his testimony, but he was not a Christian. He was not even a secret Christian. He just looked like one. It's very dangerous. We can come to church looking just like a Christian. We know what to say. We know the little noises that we need to make. We can blend right in. We may disguise ourselves. We may deceive others. We may deceive all of our friends at church, but we cannot deceive God. People have tried. Adam tried to hide from God. He was found out. Saul tried to put on a disguise. When he went to the witch of Endor, he too was found out. God sees right into my soul and into your soul. Through the disguise. A man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. It didn't work, did it? See, in verse 6, it was so when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet as she came in at the door that he said, Come in now, wife of Jeroboam. I wonder if the irony that she put on a disguise to deceive a blind man ever sunk in with her. But it didn't work. He knew exactly who she was. And he says, come in, thou wife of Jeroboam. She was welcome to come in. Come in and receive what you need to hear. And we are all welcome. We're all welcome to gather around God's word. And just like Ahijah the prophet had what she was seeking, this book has what you are seeking, what I am seeking. It has the answers. It has what we need. We all might need something different today. We might need a knowledge of sins forgiven. We might need a conviction of our sin. We might need a sense of peace with God. We might need help in a battle against sin and against self. We might be here looking for evidence of God's existence even. Evidence of his power. Now it's here for you. And it's here for me in this book. The Holy Spirit invites us in and invites us to feast on God's word. But he says, come in as who you are. Come in, Ahijah said, wife of Jeroboam. Don't come in wearing your disguise. Come in, but you need to know I know exactly who you are. Don't pretend to be something you're not. Come in, wife of Jeroboam. This was not a compliment. He wasn't saying, your majesty. He was saying, I know who you are. You're ashamed of it, but you're the wife of Jeroboam, aren't you? The Holy Spirit says to you and I tonight, come in. I know exactly who you are. Come in, God robber. Come in, you rebel. Come in, you hypocrite. Prayerless one, backslidden one. Desperately needy one, you're all welcome, but you come in 
as you are. All pretense must be gone, got, done away with. We cannot deceive God. Jeroboam, he also thought God was easily impressed. Verse 3, take with thee ten loaves, cracknels, cakes, and a cruise of honey, and go to him. What was he hoping to do? Gain favour with God with these puny and rustic gifts? Maybe that's how he thought good favour with the prophet would be bought. That the prophet would have been flattered with gifts and returned favours in kind. We cannot go to God bearing gifts. We can't go to God pleading what we have and what we can offer him. I wonder, do we approach God? We come to him, but we don't come empty-handed. And there is our problem. We bring with us gifts, gifts of virtue, gifts of church attendance, gifts of being better than other people, gifts about the moral standards we have upheld during our, during our lives, gifts of money given to the church in past times. That's why you should answer me, God. Gifts of service, kindness, good deeds that we have done. Do we expect God to treat us differently because of anything that we can give him? Because if we do, we're coming, we're coming to the wrong God. We're coming with a, a different God than the one that we see in the Bible. Do we believe that we have anything in us that recommends us more than our next door neighbour? More than those that march the streets in Pride Month? We don't. Our righteousness is filthy rags. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling. That's how we must come not bearing gifts. She could have brought something. The only thing that God would have been pleased with. David writes about it in Psalm 51. She could have brought a broken and contrite heart. <coughs> then God would have been pleased. Fourthly, Jeroboam and his wife, they thought that God was useful, <coughs> but for this present world alone. In verse 5, we find that her desire was only for her son. The wife of Jeroboam cometh to ask a thing of thee for her son, for he is sick. She had far bigger problems than a poorly son. She had spiritual problems of her own. But for some of us, we just see God as a helper, a Father Christmas figure, a crutch, an insurance policy. <laughs> Father Christmas getting a mention. For some of us, Religion is an accessory to our lives, nothing more. Some people like to be known as a religious person. Religion can be helpful in this life. It can help us to raise our children. It can give to us a moral compass. We could pray when we get sick and the Lord could answer. We could ask the Lord to provide when things are getting tight and he can provide. Now he can do this. These are not our biggest needs. Actually, we find that this boy needed nothing. In verse 13, it shows that death for him was gain. Because in him, verse 13, there is found some good thing towards the Lord God of Israel. What could that possibly be? Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was far less needy than his mother. But for Jeroboam and for his wife, their great issue 
It was their own never-dying souls hurtling towards hell, and yet she comes and says, could you tell me about my son? I wonder why are we here today? Are we here for some improvement in this life, or is our next life? Is that settled? If we are not a born-again believer today, what will the next thing that we pray for be? Will it be help? Will it be physical blessing? Or will it be spiritual? It must be spiritual first. Well, you can see that Jeroboam's theology, his idea of who God was, it affected him in this moment of crisis greatly in a negative way. But I don't want to just leave you with a negative sermon. So let's look at some ways that God is revealed here. We need to build our own theology, don't we? And God is revealed to us here, and we can learn much from it. Firstly, we see God is omniscient. He knows all about us. In verse 5, the Lord says unto Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam cometh to ask a thing of thee for her son. He knows our identity. I've touched on this already. She was wearing a disguise. Maybe she fooled a few people on the streets. God knew exactly who she was, and he knows who you are and who I am. That can make us cringe, or it can fill us with joy and comfort, depending on where we stand before God. He knows our whereabouts. The wife of Jeroboam is coming. We might have a tracker enabled on our phones where we can see a delivery driver coming, or we can see a member of our family and where they're moving around. God knows exactly where everyone is all the time. We can't hide from him. He knows our motives. The wife of Jeroboam cometh to ask a thing of thee for her son. I know why she's coming. He knows why you are here and why I am here this evening. And he also does know our circumstances, for he is sick. And he knows all about our circumstances, what we actually need. God is omniscient. Secondly, God is gracious. In verse 7 and verse 8, we see a reminder of what God has done for Jeroboam. Jeroboam was worthy of nothing. As we read about his life, he is not a particularly nice character. But look at what God has done for Jeroboam. Look at the verbs that are used here. Go tell Jeroboam, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, for as much as I exalted thee from among the people and made thee prince over my people Israel and rent the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it thee. Look at what God has done for you. He has been so gracious to you, Jeroboam. I wonder how many verbs could we use for what God has done for us. God has created us. He's sustained us. He's protected us. He's blessed us. He's prospered us. God is gracious and kind to those that do not deserve it. Thirdly, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He is the one in control of history. Jeroboam was made king not because of his force of character, not because of his political manoeuvrings. I made thee prince over my people. I exalted thee. Jeroboam was placed as king by God, and he will be removed by God. Jeroboam missed this point. If only he had understood the sovereignty of God, he would have come to him in a, in a different way. 
I wonder, do we realize that our lives are completely in God's hands? He is sovereign over nations and empires, planets and stars, and he's in complete control of our existence too. He can choose to extend our lives or to snuff them out in an instant. There's nothing we can do about it either way. And God declares to Jeroboam the cutting off of his dynasty. And sure enough, continue reading, it happened. Abijah died, just as God said. Nadab became king after Jeroboam. But he was himself assassinated by a man called Baasha, who then claimed the throne and wiped out Jeroboam's family in its entirety. What God declares is absolute. Verse 7 and verse 11 provide the bookends of this proclamation. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel in verse 7 and in verse 11, for the Lord hath spoken it. What God says is absolute. What God has said about this world is absolute. What God has said about our lives is absolute. What God has said will happen at the end of time is absolute. We need to understand that. And if we do grasp that, it will change the way that we live. Fourthly, God reveals himself as holy. He has a hatred of sin. Look in verse 9, verse 8 and verse 9. Thou hast not been as my servant David, who kept my commandments and who followed me with all his heart, to do that only which was right in mine eyes, but hast done evil above all that were before thee. He's contrasted with David here. If we know our Bibles, we know David. Yes, he was a man of God. But he had the most public, humiliating sin, didn't he? He fell hard. And yet Jeroboam is worse than David. Worse, he has done evil above all that were before thee. Worse than Saul, who tried to kill his own son. Worse than David, who killed his, his friend and stole his wife. Worse than Solomon, with his thousand wives and concubines. Yes, Jeroboam, you're worse than all of them put together. What is it? What is it that is Jeroboam's great sin? Thou hast gone and made the other gods, molten images, to provoke me to anger, and hast cast me behind thy back. Jeroboam's great sin was to deliberately withhold and to pervert the worship of Almighty God. Thou hast cast me behind thy back. God does not take that lightly. I wonder how many times have we committed this sin? How many times have we cast God behind our back? How many times have we gone and heard God's word and we've pushed it behind our back? We've gone back to work on a Monday morning. How many times when making a decision that affects our lives have we pushed God behind our back? God will not take this lightly. My friends, we must all have dealings with God. Either because we go to him in this life or we will stand before him in the next. I beg of you, do not wait until you kneel before his great white throne of judgment. We all need to do business with him today. We cannot enter the kingdom of God unless we have been reconciled to him. 
Now, we need to go in our mind's eye to the Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? Nailed to a Roman cross, his flesh being torn by the Roman whips. I know you've heard of, heard of Calvary. He's not there now. He's in heaven and his eye is turned to this little gathering today. His ear is bowed and he is ready to listen to any that would cry out to him. Now we must forget about bringing gifts. We cannot go to him like that. We must throw off all pretense and all disguise. We must acknowledge him as being sovereign. Acknowledge that he already knows it all. Confess our sin to him. Tell him you know that we, we cannot rid ourselves of this guilt, but we've heard that he has said, I am the way. We must go to him, bringing that broken and contrite heart. Go to him in repentance. Believe him when he says that he will save us from the wrath of God and make us heirs of heaven. Due to her faulty theology, Jeroboam's wife left her audience with God with a heavy heart. She trudged home to collect the wages of sin. You and I need not do the same. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And may we all go to him, understanding a little of who we are, a little more of who he is. May we close with him. May we leave this place vindicated, not like she did. Seeing in closing hymn number 527.